Welcome to the Security Sessions podcast, brought to you by Talist and hosted by me, Nera Jones. In this podcast series, we'll be discussing the technologies, people, and processes behind information security and delving into topics like data security, remote access, and digital transformation. We'll be speaking to Talis and industry experts to bring you fresh perspectives on how to navigate the world of cloud security. In today's episode, we will discuss whether a federal data privacy bill will save the day. The rapid adoption of emerging technology, the shift to hybrid working, and the move to the cloud is greatly increasing efficiency whilst adding dynamic security challenges for organizations. In the Americas, the introduction of various new laws and regulations has added another layer of complexity for businesses trying to manage the cybersecurity landscape. Legislation is expected to cover a lot of grounds, from consumer awareness, transparency and disclosure requirements, individual rights as well as control over stored data, data security, and how enforcement will be handled, to name but a few. Today, I have two fantastic guests, Kevin Williams, VP of Data Protection and Identity Management for the Americas at Thales, and Michael Barr, Partner and Co-Lead for Data Protection and Privacy at Eversheds Sutherland. Welcome to you both, Kevin and Michael. Um, would you like to very briefly introduce yourselves, Kevin? Thank you. Yes, Kevin Williams, and I run the Americas team for Talus here around data protection and identity management, as you said. Um, I've come over here. I've been here about a year and a half over from NetApp, where I ran the cloud business, and before that at Cisco Systems and Microsoft. Thank you, Kevin. Michael? Hi, yes, thank you very much for having me on uh, this podcast. So I'm Michael Bahar, and exactly as you said, I'm a, I'm a partner out of our Washington, D.C. office, but I also co-lead our global cybersecurity and data privacy practice at Evershed Sutherland. We're about 150 folks across 35 different countries. So it's a large team, which gives us a, a, a good sense of the trends, both on the cybersecurity and on the data privacy front. Thank you very much, Michael. So without further ado, let's move on to the discussion. What does the current cybersecurity and privacy landscape look like in the Americas and what changes and trends have you seen over the last 12 months, Kevin? I mean, one of the things we're seeing a, a huge increase on is things around cybersecurity insurance. So companies that are trying to qualify for, for that uh, element uh, there are much stricter requirements around things like multi-factor authentication, around encryption, and those. And and I think a lot of customers are are finding that the comprehensiveness of those uh, requirements are more daunting than they they probably probably thought. And so we're seeing an increase in in requests for help navigating that landscape. And uh, that's not without its uh, its challenges and. Uh... Uh, it's it's becoming even more complex in uh, uh, from a regulatory standpoint. So what are we seeing from a regulatory point of view as guidance to help organizations get on top of these privacy and data protection issues, Michael? Another way to, to put what I think Kevin is talking about is that the bar to reasonableness is going up, right? The expectations on what is appropriate um, is really increasing in light of the rapidly evolving threats 
Uh, and that's being matched on the regulatory side, right? There's this expectation that if you are not doing multi-factor authentication, you may be falling short of what is the standard now. Um, and if you are not constantly or at least periodically annually looking at your cybersecurity policies, plans, and procedures, right, and, and updating those, you might be considered falling short. Um, so I think what you're seeing on the regulatory side is similar to what you're seeing in the cyber insurance, heightened expectations, elevated expectations. And on the privacy side as well, there's going to be an increasing obligation among businesses, not just to protect the data from hackers, but to really safeguard the data internally, how it is used, um, how it collected and processed. So, and, and on that point, Michael, I mean, what uh, what do you find yourself having to do more and more of as far as advising your clients in that respect? So really what we have to do more and more is to navigate this ever-changing landscape, especially in the United States, right? Because we are 50 states and, right, we just saw Connecticut pass a new data privacy law. We have California set to implement the CPRA on January 1, 2023. Not that the CCPA is very old. We saw Utah pass a bill, Colorado pass a bill, Virginia pass a bill. And just last week, we have the federal government advancing um, the national privacy bill to the House floor. So there's a lot of change. So really what we are doing is trying to find efficient and administratively easy ways for multinational or multi-jurisdictional companies to comply and future-proof because there are so many changes. That often involves taking what we like to call the high watermark approach, right? Where we aim compliance a little higher than maybe they need to because we can read the tea leaves as to where things are going. But there's a lot of change, a lot of churn, and the key is to be proactive and sort of on your front foot, not not on your heels, as it were. And uh, and and with respect to to uh, multi jurisdictional uh, companies, Kevin, are you seeing a change and being asked to do some more and more specific things? Yeah, I mean, as Michael suggests, that the everyone's trying to get ahead of the problem, right? And you're seeing bills and, and privacy acts trying to help provide guidance. And I think one of the things we see is is just an educational process as these larger organizations who have lots of problems in their businesses are now putting security on the front end of it, uh, as, as Michael also said, you know, on the front foot. And you're seeing them act in different ways. They're doing more workshops, more studies, more discovery. So they not only um, understand where their data is, but they're understanding what their data is. And they're applying different layers of protection against different types of data. You're seeing this in healthcare, you're seeing this in financial services. But you're also seeing it in, in, in industries like manufacturing. Um, so I think that the uh, focus that the government is putting on these regulatory elements is putting shining a spotlight on where companies need to apply energy. And, and it's, it's good to see. That, that's great. And uh, there is another trend which I find uh, extremely interesting from a regulatory point of view. Uh, and and this is also happening worldwide, but specifically uh, in the Americas, there was a recent uh, SEC settlement that uh, highlighted increased focus 
on financial institutions facing cyber intrusions. So this was for, from an AML context, and, and, and it was a very interesting article to read. So in that respect, do you see data protection and privacy challenges pervade into other regulations, uh, Michael? Yes, no, that's such a good observation. Um, really, you know, cyber and privacy are industry agnostic and they cut across all industries. So every company has to increasingly be cyber aware and an increasing number of companies have to up their privacy compliance programs. And similarly, because of that, you have many more regulators, particularly in the United States, getting involved. And that presents a really complex set of challenges. You know, you mentioned the financial services sector. There are many regulators in the FS sector, right, at the state level, at the federal level. And we can expect to see more not only rulemaking by the SEC, but more enforcement, including by the FTC, the CFPB, and an alphabet soup of other organizations. And being investigated or subject to enforcement action by one certainly does not preclude an investigation or enforcement action by the other. So having a consistent and a coordinated approach to regulatory compliance, regulatory notifications is increasingly critical. If, if you're subject, if you're in highly regulated space and or if you sit um, subject to multiple jurisdictions of regulators, I just want to sort of emphasize that a consistent and coordinated approach is critical. Uh, absolutely, and and uh, avoiding a sort of a regulatory silos for organisation to look at all of this in a in a holistic fashion. So we've mentioned financial services, but uh, what other industries could be uh, more affected by this kind of converging of various regulations? I think you're seeing some um, a lot of interest in the utility space. Uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, utility companies, especially since you saw the an energy company since you saw the, the colonial pipeline attack. Um, those industries are highly regulated as, as um, Michael indicated, and we're seeing increased inspection, increased regulatory elements there. Um, laws like FDIC, which is sort of interesting, like an FDIC version two, which is the federal depository insurance uh, elements, you know, the, in order to get FDIC compliance, the, re the requirements are getting more strict. Right. So the, the government is, is using those certifications and those those pieces in order to drive behavior. And I think it's in a positive way. So um, would would it ever be possible to introduce legislation like the proposed federal information privacy bill? Do you think, Michael? You know, we are seeing federal legislation on the privacy side, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, work its way out of committee and it's coming before the, the House floor. And it, it may very well pass the House, but, you know, there are real challenges to, to passing a federal privacy bill in the United States. And particularly when it goes into the Senate, you're going to have California senators who are going to be really looking at this because there's going to be a preemption aspect and California is very proud of its privacy act and they won't be looking for anything that provides less privacy protections and probably will not want to strip 
the CPPA, which is the California sort of privacy protection agency of its authority. So there's some real challenges to passing a comprehensive privacy bill. But then again, the need for that is becoming increasingly apparent as companies have to wade through this thicket of various privacy requirements. Now, on the cybersecurity side, however, we did see legislation pass back in March, which goes more to this idea of notification within 72 hours of a private of a cybersecurity event, as well as notification of any payments of ransom within 24 hours. But that really is only focused on critical infrastructure, and we don't really know what they're going to consider in scope. But normally, the financial services sector is within critical infrastructure. Um, You know, the electrical sector, the energy sector, as Kevin was talking about, would be in scope. But we still need to wait for the rules and regs to come out. Absolutely. And that will be very uh, interesting. So in your view, Kevin, what would the impact of such a such a bill and, 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 and similar regulation be on, on uh, uh, the businesses you look after? So, you know, I think it, it, it highlights some interesting technology choices, right? I think customers are increasingly looking at those privacy bills and, and the way that the, the winds are, are blowing. And their chief concern that they're talking to me about is the ability to have choice. If the keys in my data is being subpoenaed for, for a variety of reasons, or if I need to provide it, I want to have control over whether or not I give the keys to my encryption to the government or to the party that's asking for it. So a lot of the questions I get are really around how do I maintain as much control over that decision as I can? So, uh, so in terms of uh, technology uh, solutions, uh, what are you seeing being recommended and implemented currently to address all of those challenges, Kevin? So I think the first step that companies across any vertical are reconciling is the fact that they're becoming data management companies. So whatever technology, whatever business they're in, they're also in the data management business. And within that, there's sort of three lenses that they need to look at it. One is in data at rest. One is in data that's in flight being moved or, or data that's in use by an application or, or a party. And when they put those three lenses in play and start applying these privacy and regulatory concerns against it, I think it's, it's easy to bite off the problem. And I think that I think companies are getting better at addressing the magnitude of this data explosion and and the amount of data that's being created and putting it into these buckets and then applying policies and technology against those buckets um, at, um, you know, at a pace that suits their business velocity. And I think that that's a good good way to approach it. You mentioned uh, the ability to have uh choice and, and control over the technology uh, decisions companies actually make. So, Michael, do you, do you find uh, clients requesting advice from, from you in terms of uh, uh, the suitability or, or, or the advantages of certain technologies over others? Yes, we often get questions about how technology can help this data management process. 
Right. And in broad strokes, what's becoming increasingly desirable, if not required, is the technological ability to basically map and track and tag your data, especially personal data, from cradle to grave. Right. This idea is you've got to know your data, you've got to know where it goes, but you have to know where it comes from because different rules are going to apply. Right. Again, you, you know, you, you rightfully focus on the financial services sector, right? In, in the Americas, in the United States, you can have personal data, personal information on the same individual subjects to very different rules, right? Because you've got the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act applying to, you know, consumer financial products, that kind of data. But when they're online getting these things, there's going to be some cookies that are not subject to Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act necessarily and are subject to California Privacy Rights Act. So it becomes quite a thorny um, process. And so having technologies to map and track and tag your data from cradle to grave is helpful. And of course, also, if there's a cyber incident, the more readily you are able to determine what was impacted where it belongs, right, will also help determine what the rules are for breach notification purposes. And lastly, of course, with all these increasing restrictions on cross-border data flows, you want to have a good handle on uh, where in the world your data is. And there's, of course, uh, another aspect that uh, particularly interests me, and uh, that is uh, the the uh, the way the supply chains have exploded. So when we talk about data privacy and, and protection, we have massively extended supply chains now because everything is as a service. There is a lot of cloud provision, who is in control, what model to choose, and so on and so forth. So when you have this sort of a multi party arrangement where maybe uh, the original company is in control of the data, but they have many, many suppliers in their supply chain to deliver those services. What kind of challenges are you seeing around this first to you, Michael, and then to you, Kevin? You know, it's funny because I've spent now 20 years in the US military as well. So there's often this concern in military logistics about overextending your your logistics lines, your supply chains. And I think we're seeing that in the private sector now where we're becoming so just in time, so efficient that we open ourselves up to easy disruption. And cyber attacks in particular are being aimed at the supply chain, both in the way as a way to introduce the vulnerability into the ultimate target but also as a way to cause maximum disruption. And of course, as the geopolitical situation continues to destabilize, you're going to see more attacks on the supply chain. And that's why it's increasingly important to not look at efficiency as the sine qua non, as the sole objective. And you've got to marry that up with resilience. Um, as I like to say, do you really want to fly in a plane that is too efficient? No, right? You want, you know, the backup systems, the backups to the backup systems. That adds, you know, expense. It's not that efficient, but you don't want to be 30,000 feet relying on a single engine um, just in case something goes wrong. I think that, um, yeah, to, to maybe take a different angle than Michael, although I agree with what he what he proposed, is 
you know, if you think about the, the, the COVID response that's happened over the last couple of years with vaccine distribution and the, and the making the vaccine, getting the vaccine ampules out across the world, you, you know, we actually saw this happening in real time where, where everyone said, well, let's focus with companies like Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson and pharmaceuticals that are making the virus, and that's the source of protection. And, and that was done relatively well, by the way. And, and where the disruption started happening was in logistical transport. So DHL and UPS and FedEx were, were their schedules and their shipping and their containers and the, the disembarkment from different countries and the import-export processes were not as well protected. And those were easily disrupted and, and slowed down response time. So I think it, it caused everyone to take a moment of pause and think about what it takes to get something cradle to grave from point A to point B. And all those elements have to have a cyber inspection to make sure that you're using multi-factor authentication for portals, for schedules, for trucking and, and gasoline and, and everything you need to get these things out there. Um, any part of that can be disrupted. If, if any one part doesn't have protection, then, then the whole logistical process is compromised. So on that front, Kevin, so what should the next steps be for businesses? How do they get started on this journey? Yeah, so, you know, I think that the first start uh, for companies is around education, right? Get smarter about the privacy concerns that your particular leg of the race has. Um, understand any regulatory or compliance restrictions. Understand risk assessment. The good thing that I'm seeing in the marketplace right now is this establishment of, of consortiums. So you see things in Virginia, like the Cyber Fusion Consortium. You see it in Arizona with Cyber Canyon. You see it in Texas, with Cyber Techs. You're getting consortiums of literally hundreds of a variety of companies, some manufacturers, some, some other consulting firms that are bringing subject matter experts together at no charge to help educate groups. So I would encourage anyone out there listening to join your local consortium on cybersecurity and participate. And that will help educate you on what solutions and what priority you should think about your business. Thank you, Kevin. And Michael, what should be the next step as far as you're concerned over and above what Kevin just told us? What Kevin said is, is so important and, and I love it. Um, you know, there's the consortiums, there's the FF, there's the ISACs, right? Information sharing and exchange centers, particularly the FS, the financial services ISAC. There's one for the energy sector because Kevin's 115% right, right? We need, it's time to circle the wagons and share knowledge, right? And that's what's also behind a lot of these legislative efforts and regulatory efforts around notification. If you look at it, it's primarily designed to prevent systemic attacks, right? Attacks on entire industries and entire sectors, right? The SEC or the Department of Homeland Security, CISA, they want to know as soon as possible to prevent another solar winds, to prevent another widespread attack, because they too acknowledge the increasing instability on the geopolitical arena. So they are trying to protect the national security and the homeland security of the United States. So that's also what's feeding into some of these legislative proposals. So companies should really realize that they shouldn't do it alone. They don't need to do it alone. They need to learn from others. They need to get 
advanced warnings. They need to understand the TTPs, the tactics, techniques, and protocols, not only of the bad guys, but of the defensive measures they can take. And that comes from educating. And I think there's also an increasing regulatory expectation to be part of consortiums or ISACs. Again, it's not a requirement, but I have always found it very helpful in responding to regulatory subpoenas to say, hey, so-and-so is a member of the FS ISAC, for example. Right? They are taking the time to educate themselves. And, and what I said earlier, right, to look at their policies, plans, and procedures on a periodic basis and make sure that they're updated and maintained in light of current thets and current regulatory um, measures and expectations. Absolutely excellent points. As uh, as in many instances, cooperation is absolutely key, not only uh, uh, within the private, the various private sectors, but also between uh, between public and and private sector. I think uh, that's also fundamental. And and I'm afraid we're nearly out of time. But before I let you both go, I would like to ask you one last question and to give us each one of you one last tip. Horror audience, starting with you, Kevin. Uh, my tip is to keep it simple. Keep it simple. Do the basics. Um, 90 plus percent of attacks happen because systems aren't patched or because processes aren't followed. Keep it simple and work the problem. Thank you, Kevin. And you, Michael? Yeah, you know, along those lines, I love it. Keep it simple. Do the basics. Play the fundamentals. Um but always keep in the back of your mind that you want to create a favorable record of reasonableness in your policies, in your plans, in your procedures. The goal is to be reasonable, not necessarily to be perfect. And if an incident happens, realize you want to write that narrative of how much you care about privacy, how much you care about individuals, how much you care about doing the right thing. So to, to really always think about creating that favorable record of reasonableness, left of boom, at time zero, and right of boom, and you'll be fine. Fantastic. I really like that last point. Both points, keep it simple and create a favorable record of reasonableness. I like that. Thank you so very much, both of you. You have been listening to the Thales Security Sessions podcast. My guests today were Kevin Williams, VP Data Protection and Identity Management for the Americas at Thales, and Michael Bahar, Partner and Co-Lead for Data Privacy at Evershed Sutherland. The title of our episode today was Can the Federal Data Privacy Bill Save the Day? Thank you for listening. Love this episode of the Talus Security Sessions podcast? Search us out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast service to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Be sure to visit us at cpl.talusgroup.com to access previous episodes, bringing you insights from industry experts on the latest cloud and data security news and trends. Thank you for listening.